Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles. Supposed to be a rainy day today, but so far the sun is out and shining. Last night I took my motorcycle down to Long Beach, California to interview an old friend, Reverend Tenzin Kacho. She has been ordained as a Buddhist nun now for over 21 years. And I wanted to speak to her about why she became a Buddhist and why she became a Buddhist nun and the kind of work she's been doing since she's been a Buddhist nun. This is a little longer interview than I normally do, but she had so many interesting stories and things to talk about, it was hard to cut it off short. So what we're looking at is about an hour and 14 minutes of Tenzin Kacho speaking about what it means to be a Buddhist nun in America. So without further introduction, here is my interview with Venerable Tenzin Kacho. Okay, uh, this is um, Reverend Kusla talking to Venerable Tenzin Kacho in Long Beach, California. Uh, I first met Venerable Tenzin Kacho in 1994 at the International Buddhist Meditation Center. Uh, we were both there for a grand ordination and I was being ordained as a novice monk and she was becoming ordained as a bhikkhuni, a fully ordained nun in the Vietnamese Zen tradition. Uh, and that was the first time I met her and we struck up a friendship that has lasted uh, until today, which is uh, in April 1st, 2006. So she kindly consented to allow me to interview her about being a Buddhist, <clears throat> about being a Buddhist nun in America. So, Tenzin Kacho, the first question I'd like to ask you is, um, why did you become a Buddhist? What was the turning point in your life? What did you read or what did you see that made a difference? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you and uh, thank you for inviting me to do this. Um, why I became a Buddhist, or what first inspired me, was meeting a friend named Ward Holmes, who um, had been gone for many years studying in India, and I uh, was friends with people who lived on the property of his family. And um, after years of knowing my friends and going to visit them at their home, one day Ward had returned from India, and I was so struck by his presence, his interest and love of his teachers and the Dharma, that I had to find out more. And he was only there for a short while, so I just started devouring everything I could on uh, Buddhism, and uh, particularly the Buddhism of Tibet. Do you remember what the first book was that you read about Buddhism? Was it a sutta or a book about Buddhism? I believe it was a sutta. And actually, even before I met Ward, um, I had picked up the words of the Buddha. Mm. A little text that I found in a Buddhist temple in Hilo, Hawaii, where my daughter was attending preschool. And um, I just started questioning things that were going on in my life. And so this little text, the words of the Buddha, just spoke to me and uh, it was that 
And uh, another little trigger, I should say, was um, taking a course in comparative um, English. And we were comparing the poetry of uh, a Zen master and the singer Bob Dylan. Mm. <laughs> and I felt... I found the, uh, the uh, exercise very interesting in examining the words and the import of their words. So those things really started waking me up to the Dharma. And then Ward came into your life, and he was a person who was actually practicing. Exactly. And, and that then you said, I need to find out more. That was like yes. a real turning point right. in your life. Now, because you were born and raised in Hawaii... Buddhism, I guess, is very much a part of Hawaii, isn't it? Yes. It's been there for a while, and yet you hadn't been to a Buddhist temple. I had been to many Buddhist you temples, have. actually. Okay. Um, and this, the curious situation was that my family background is Japanese, mm -hmm. um, and there were Japanese and Chinese Buddhist temples all over Hawaii that were very, very beautiful. Um, many of them handmade um, structures with beautiful curving roofs mm. and carvings and I, um, I was very drawn to those as well um, but when I would go to the temples for services and they were primarily funeral services mm. the monks or the priests I should say would be chanting these sutras and they would take a long time at, and I would say a long time in the mind of a young child mm. sitting on a hard pew. Yes. Uh, it would just seem very long. And I can remember asking my father what the priest was saying. And it rather um, uh, made me feel a bit disgruntled that what the problem was, was that uh, the the priests were chanting sutras in Sanskritized Japanese. Ah. So I, my dad couldn't understand what they were saying, and so it left me completely clueless. Um, so we would just sit through these long, long engagements. So because of that, it did not um, really open me up until later when mm. I started reading some translations. And, and after the um, meeting with Ward and f seeing an actual practicing Buddhist, then <clears throat> did you seek out a center? Did you decide, I'm going to meditate now? Or did that come later? Or did, Because you said you, you went to find some more books, you wanted to read about it, you wanted right. to find out more about it. When did you first start to meditate? And what was the, what was the reason for that? Uh-huh. Actually, I started exploring everything I could after that, reading everything, going to all kinds of centers, whether they were Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, um, going to hear lectures by different um, people who had come through and lecture in Hawaii on all different philosophies and religions, and I, and I loved it. But the idea of practice and meditation did not really... Um, really settle in me for a long while and um, I guess where it really started becoming stronger as a field of practice for me 
was when I finally had an opportunity to move to a temple in Hawaii that was being um, re how do you say, resuscitated, mm -hmm. re uh, renovated. It had been abandoned for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was going to be reestablished as a Tibetan Buddhist center after being a Japanese Nichiren center, mm. um, abandoned after the sugar cane companies had consolidated their little towns. Mm -hmm. And this one was, was uh, just left empty for many, many years. And it was there that I started... Uh, studying what is called the Lamrim, which in Tibetan means the graduated Lam is path, so the graduated path mm. to enlightenment. Mm. And um, those teachings were very, very powerful for me. Now, with all the different kinds of Buddhism that we have in the world today, and we had back then as well. What what drew you to Tibetan tradition, the Vajrayana tradition? Well, I could say that um, one was, it was a little exotic. It was a faraway land. Mm. It was uh, with the Tibetan people who were living in exile in India and Nepal. Um, something on my own turf with the Japanese and, and Chinese temples just seemed um, perhaps to... Uh, too close? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but also there was this quality in um, in my friend Ward, who had studied with the Karmapa, the previous Karmapa, and how he, um, whenever he would speak about his teacher, tears would flow from his eyes. And I just thought it was so um, unusual for a man to cry about his relationship with his teacher. And uh, so this was um, one thing that made me inquire about the Tibetan Buddhist path because they, um, they speak so much about the importance of a teacher. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. Okay. So you were practicing, <coughs> you were studying, you, you chose uh, the Tibetan style of Buddhism uh, and... and you became, I guess, a lay person. Did you did you take precepts? Did uh, you did you uh, <laughs> take a name on? Yes, I did, did, but not for a while. Okay. I um, studied at this temple in Hawaii for a year, and uh, and then the Karmapa was making a tour of the United States. So there, he did give refuge precepts, but I didn't take them at the time. I, uh, to me, taking the precepts, the refuge precepts, was something so important and I wanted to be very sure in doing them that uh, I did not take the precepts even though they were offered in California. And uh, during that visit, it was kind of a pilgrimage where we followed the Karmapa from San Francisco uh, and we drove all the way up into Vancouver, Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally in Canada, I did take refuge with the Karmapa, and I received an, a name. They, they did a little clipping of the hair that they do when they uh, give the refuge ceremony. And so, um, so it was there that I was launched, so to speak. Wow. Now, at that point in your life, were you living in, uh, uh, in the States? 
On the 48, I guess. Um, I was actually on my way to Boulder, Colorado, to live in Boulder and to study with Trungpa Rinpoche, Mm. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And you remember what year this is? That was 1974. Okay. And um, so I had taken refuge precepts. I had met Trungpa Rinpoche in San Francisco, Mm. and I asked him where could I go. I wanted to study with him um, because in Hawaii there was no teacher. Mm-hmm. We were just studying some some um, uh, teachings that were being sent and had been um, recorded from India. Okay. So, um, yeah, so 1974, I made my way to Boulder, Colorado and studied for a few months with Trungpa Rinpoche. And as you look back in 1974, uh, uh, what was your take on Buddhism? Was it was it pretty mystical, schmistical at that point? Not mainstream. Not a lot of books out. With Tibetan Buddhism. With Tibetan Buddhism. It was uh, very new to me. Okay. But um, but I was astounded by the number of people who showed up to see the Karmapa. Hmm. Um, I was born and raised in Hawaii, so I really did not have m- uh, too much experience of living on the um, in the 40 in the continental U.S. Mm-hmm. So um, when we landed in San Francisco, the Black Crown ceremony that the the Karmapa was giving was held in one of these uh, big um, shipping warehouses mm-hmm. along the docks in San Francisco. And there were several tens of thousands of people there. Wow! It was, I I was quite um, um, amazed to see so many people there yeah. for this. Um, and so, being mystical, mm, the the ceremony of the black crown was something quite unusual and different. Different. Um, I attended it, uh-huh. but I did not. Um, I was quite interested in who he was as a person. Mm. But I think they say that you need special kind of uh, connection with this to really see what he's holding there as mm. this mystical crown. And um, I tend to be much more, um, I would say, down to earth. Practical down to earth yeah. rather than yeah. uh, on the mystical side. Okay, so now you're in Boulder, Colorado. So I went to Boulder, Colorado. And you're and you're staying with Trungpa. Yes. At that point, how long did you stay with him? Um, until January of '75. So I just I studied with him for about four or five months. Okay. And um, I loved his teachings. His teachings were fantastic. Yeah. Um, I found him very creative, innovative, going to the heart. Uh, his book, um, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, yes. had just come out. Okay. I found that a seminal text for us as Westerners um, and uh, really enjoyed his talks. What was confusing for me was the, the community and the conduct of the community mm. because there was a lot of... Um, carousing and a lot of drinking and, a, and what seemed like a lot of womanizing and I was living there with my daughter who was five mm. and um, 
found also that it was very expensive to go to his talks. I had to find a sitter or to take her with every time. Um, the teachings would be billed for 7.30 or 8 o'clock, but he wouldn't show up till 10. Mm -hmm. And he would expect us to sit there um, quietly until he showed up. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I just found that confusing. Mm -hmm. I think there was perhaps what you could say skillful means on his style of doing what he was doing and the way he was doing it. Mm -hmm. But it was confusing to me to be listening to someone teach while smoking cigarettes and, um, and uh, perhaps manifesting drunkenness, mm. even though the teachings were so clear yeah. and wonderful. Um, but I had, the seed had already been planted mm -hmm. for me to go to India. So, so is this when you decided to go to India after you yes, left him? Yes, it was a decision. In Colorado? Yes, okay. it was a decision. And I actually asked him that question, too. Hmm. I said, what, what did you say to him? It took me four months to get an interview with him. Hmm. And so I asked, um, I am enjoying your classes, but I'd also really like to study in India. And... Um, and I have an opportunity to make money to go to India by going to work in Alaska. Mm. So, um, what do you think about all this? And he just said, why don't you go on retreat? So I went uh, to Shambhala, which what is now called Shambhala Mountain Center, okay. in the dead of winter, and did a 10-day um, solitary retreat on, in Shamata, just watching my breath for a minimum of eight hours a day in a solitary cabin through a blizzard. <laughs> wow. And for a, a, a girl from Hawaii, that was quite um, quite um, a different yeah. uh, experience. So um, I'll never forget that retreat. Yeah. And uh, it was very, very simple. I just um, heated the one little room by um, with a wood stove and... Uh, stoke it up in the morning and start a pot of uh, brown rice on top of the stove and cook some brown rice and I had uh, raw carrots and brown rice for 10 days wow. um, and uh, bathed once by rolling in the snow <laughs> Wow! so it was in this retreat that you decided India yes, was calling you to go on to India okay yeah and, but you went to Alaska first to make yes. some money? Yes, we. Uh, I drove to Alaska from Boulder, Colorado. Wow. And um, uh, really encouraged several friends from the Boulder community and met some friends from the Hawaii community to meet me. And my sister came up as well. So there were a whole lot of us that uh. went up to Fairbanks, Alaska uh -huh. to strike it rich with that black gold. Ah, uh, the oil, huh? Yes. Working for the oil Yes, the oil, uh, oil pipeline was coming in. Yeah. Uh, several of the people went out on the line to build it, and um, I was just interested in making enough money to go to India. Mm. So I never went out on the line. I just worked as uh, two to three jobs at a time, okay. doing waitressing or working in a health food um, store and um, shipping supplies out from an office supply company out onto the pipeline. So made a little stash. And, and how long did it take you to make enough money to go to India? I was there nine months. Okay. And in nine months, I afforded a, a 
trip to Hawaii and back uh -huh. twice, uh -huh. and also a six-month visit to India. Wow. And did you take your daughter with you to India? No. My daughter stayed with my ex-husband in okay. Hawaii. Okay. And... Uh, I was able to go and study in India. Wow. So, now did you go to Dharamsala? I went to Dharamsala. We okay. went by coal train across India from Calcutta all the way to New Delhi and up to Patankot, and then by bus up into the Himalayan mountains. Wow. Yes. And <laughs> what kind of living arrangements did you have while you were there? I rented a tiny little room that was so tiny that um, uh, it had a little door and a big window. And it was barely as long as I was tall. Wow. Um, and it was just maybe two inches higher than I was tall. Wow. And it had a little shelf in it. Like a little cell. It was a little cell. Yeah. <laughs> but I could throw open this big window and look out at ah. the mountain range and the valley below. So mm. it was very, very beautiful. Mm. And where I was going to study was at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives, which had just opened in 1972, I believe, mm -hmm. 71 perhaps. Um, and uh, I wanted to study there with... Venerable Geshe Nawang Darge. Mm. And it was actually he in 1975 who suggested that I become a nun. Okay, yeah, I was curious about that. So now you're in India and you're studying. I'm studying. And so this monk says to you, Have you ever thought about becoming a nun? What he was said, your Why don't you become a nun? <laughs> <laughs> and what was your first thought? When you said that, were you thinking in that direction? Not at all. Okay. My daughter was six. Yeah. And I was totally taken aback by what he said yeah. and replied that that would be very difficult. It might be hard. I have a young daughter. But he said that to me after I'd been studying with him for about three or four months. And at that point, we broke for a winter break. Now, do you think he saw something in you? I think so. Okay. I, I really believe so, because okay. he did not say things like that to just anybody. Mm -hmm. He was very um, careful. Well, he was very... Um, clear with what he said to everyone yeah. in his way of teaching and, and his conduct. And um, so I went, went on pilgrim, pilgrimage for about six weeks, perhaps, all over uh, the Buddhist holy places. So we went to Sarnath, where the Buddha mm -hmm. um, first taught. Mm -hmm. The five disciples. We went to Bodhgaya, where he attained enlightenment. We went to Lumbini, which is now within the borders of, of Nepal, so changing borders. And that is where the Buddha um, was born. And uh, to Kapilavastu, where the Buddha passed away, mm -hmm. and to Parinibbana. So um, we went on all these holy places. And then I stayed in the tent on top of the Tibetan temple for about a month, three weeks or a month, um, in Bodhgaya, where mm -hmm. the Buddha attained enlightenment. And every day I would go to sit under the Bodhi tree, which is the descendant of the tree that the Buddha 
attained enlightenment under. Yeah. And thought about what my teacher said and read over my notes and also studied with the first, uh, the senior tutor of the Dalai Lama, Ling mm. Rinpoche. Okay. Studied with him. And then we went back to Dharamsala when the new season began, new season of classes. And those days, the classes were long. It was, we had three classes a day, six days a week. Wow. So um, we were f- quite busy. Yeah. And um, in 75, when we were there, um, although the Tibetans had come out in 1959 after the diaspora, it was still very, very poor. Um, people would stand in line at a community water tap and wait for a little water mm. and wash their pots and pans with ashes. Um, there were no toilets to speak of. We just would go find a shrub somewhere. Mm. Um, and uh, it was hard. Yeah. It was hard. I would... I would go what kind back. of food did you eat when you were there? Um, did you eat what the other students ate? Yeah, I was vegetarian. Okay. And um, I was a little afraid to eat the meat because it would hang on hooks with flies buzzing uh. all around them. Yeah. And um, um, so we would prepare our own food okay. or sometimes go into little restaurants and buy some noodles, um, noodles and tea. Okay. So um, that's what we ate. And um, and speaking of uh, the the meat, you know, at first they used to uh, slaughter the the sheep and goats down below and haul them up, haul them up to McLeod Ganj where we used to live, where we where the big um, Tibetan community is. Uh-huh. Uh, but then the um, the um, butchers were got smarter, I guess, and had the animals walk up the hill. <laughs> Save them the work, huh? <laughs> yeah. And um, so every morning we could hear the animals being screaming, screaming before oh. being slaughtered. Did you say prayers for them? Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, my teacher, my same teacher, Geshe Darge, suggested that we actually go and observe the, the event. Yeah. So one morning we did go to mm. watch what they were doing to the mm. animals, and um, that was that was very provocative. Yeah, what an eye opener. Yeah. The suffering of the animals, but also the suffering of the people killing the animals. Yes, right. Yeah. Creating. Yeah. Creating Karmic the consequences for themselves and others. So. Right, but you know, um, because of the market was there. Yeah. yeah. For the meat eaters. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the, where were we? <laughs> well, what an experience. But now you, you still haven't become a nun. You've been thinking about it. You've been taking classes. Right. And so what was the turning point? When did you decide that he was right? Well, during my, <laughs> yes, during my um, pilgrimage uh-huh. to these holy places, I recollected his teachings about you've attained this wonderful human birth. This is your precious opportunity to really practice. Uh, what, what else is more important than really cultivating and developing your spiritual practice? 
And um, so I thought about it, and after I returned from our pilgrimage, I made an appointment to see him and, um, and told him that I'd been thinking about his suggestion that I become a nun and uh, told him I would like to do that. And it was translated to him, and his reply came back, it might be difficult, you have a young daughter. <laughs> <laughs> the same things you said. The same things I said. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, it would be wonderful. Mm. It would be wonderful. Um, however, uh, the point of becoming a nun uh, did not happen for another ten years. Wow, okay. Yeah, another ten years. And... Um, I'm so glad that I had those 10 years. It was like a, a consideration put on the back burner of mm-hmm. my life. And during those 10 years, I um, engaged in a lot of things. I moved from, after I moved back from India, I was in Hawaii and we studying with different teachers. Okay. And then I moved to California and started studying with Gisha Geltsin, who's mm-hmm. I'm working with still. And um, so it wasn't like your practice and study stopped for those ten years. You were still no. actively pursuing study and practice. Yes. Okay. Yes, actively studying, but also my daughter was growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there was a young man who became a monk. Here at our center, hmm. and when he did that, um, and when you say our center, which we're yes, now sitting in, and we're sitting and in, and it is called Tupton Dargay Ling. Okay, and it's a land Long- of Buddha's teachings. It's now situated in Long Beach, California. Okay. Yes. Okay. So uh, this man became a monk, and it reignited my long ago aspiration to and was this man an American? He was an American. Okay. Right. So you were seeing Americans getting ordained. Yes. In in some respect. And that and then you thought to yourself, maybe, well, why not me? Yes. Right. Okay. Again. Thinking about the um, the um, how short our lives are mm-hmm. actually. And the older I get, the shorter it seems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For <And> good reason. <laughs> <laughs> and the, um, the precious opportunity of being able to study and practice yes. as a monastic is so rare and so, um, so special. Well, if I could just interrupt for a second. Yeah. I, I, I remember with a great fondness what uh, Gesha Gelson said about that. We, I was traveling with him and other monks and nuns up to Vajrapani for a monastic conference. I think it was a second monastic conference. And, and he was asked to speak. And somehow I went with the group, with him up there. And we stopped off at a restaurant on the way to have some food. And we're sitting, eating. And he was talking about Western monastics. And, and he said, Western monastics are like white crows. <laughs> and I still remember that to this day. The how, how rare Western monastics are. Mm-hmm. And he recognized that, too. Yeah. But, he, but what he says now is not so rare. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> there are more white crows now. That's good. Good. Or maybe not so many white crows, but more Western monastics. Oh, good. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. So how did you 
get ordained then? Did, did, did you approach a teacher and yes. say, I want to be ordained? I did. I, um, I really wanted to be ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Mm. I felt that I um, would keep my promise and my vows so much more uh, closely um, precious, m more precious, because of my esteem for him as a as a teacher, as a monastic, as an exemplary uh, figure of how to practice and lead my own life. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I, I wrote a letter to him asking if I could be ordained by him. Um, and in 1975, when I first thought about it, he was not ordaining, um, at least not women at that time. But by 1985, when I was finally ordained, and I had written the letter about a year ahead in advance, um, requesting this, and so it was set up, and I went back to India to mm -hmm. be ordained by him. Um, now, as a woman, what do you see as some of the unique challenges when you became ordained, mm -hmm. as compared to a guy mm -hmm. like myself? <laughs> um, well, you had to cut off your hair. <laughs> was that traumatic? Had you thought about that? Uh, no. Yes, I had thought, thought about it, okay. but I didn't feel it was particularly traumatic. Okay. One thing that I also uh, organized was that after I was ordained, I would enter a nunnery ah. in India because I wanted other monastic examples around me. Other monastic uh, women, women around you. And, okay. uh, and the monastic community around me. Yes. So that I could have um, um, many teachers in that sense, yeah. so to speak, of how they live their lives as monastics. So um, I also requested entry into uh, Tibetan nunnery in Dharamsala. Okay. And... Um, and lived with them for about six months that time. Wow. Um, and was it a hard life in the nunnery? It was. Did you have a lot of work and study and practice? Okay. Um, I had a lot of challenges because I, at that point I did not speak Tibetan. Okay. And I was also practicing uh, not eating afternoon. Mm. And uh, I was also vegetarian. Mm in a non-vegetarian community. Wow. Um, so uh, s uh, sometimes I would not have anything except rice, um, and they'd want to put a whole lot of sugar on top of it to maybe sweeten my <laughs> meal, I guess. I'll give you energy, but, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't yeah. want to eat the sugar. Did you have any so. health problems because of that? Um, occasional colds. Okay. It's very cold in the, um, the Himalayan foothills in the winter time. Yeah. And um, yeah. So otherwise, no. I was quite. I was quite good, healthy, and I loved living there. Um, challenges were more with um, <coughs> some of my food and not being able to speak to people. Did and any of the nuns speak English? There were two nuns who spoke English at okay. the time, okay. but they were very busy and had other duties. I was not busy doing chores uh, because 
Um, my teacher, Geshe Geltsin, was um, had arranged it for me to be what's called a chunze, which is um, where you make a special exception and um, offerings to the, the nunnery to be able to be excused from the ordinary duties. And I think this has um, good points and bad points mm -hmm. because um, in jumping in and doing all the activities with the nuns, then I would probably have learned much more about their lifestyle mm -hmm. rather than being um, exempt from it all. However, because I was only there six months, it gave me that much more time to devote to study and learning the language and um, just um, acclimatizing myself to the, the situation of living there and being a, being a monastic. So. Now, what comes to my mind, and after speaking to uh, people in the Tibetan tradition who went to India to become ordained, what do you do next? I, I know a lot of people who are ordained don't have any place to go. You know, they go there, they're excited about Buddhism, they're excited about the ordination process. They get their ordination, but they don't have a temple to go to, they don't have a center to go to, they don't have a community to go to. Yes. Did you have some place to go in America after your ordination? I came back here okay. to the center, okay. um, which was at that point uh, in West L.A. Okay. And uh, actually had to go out and go to work because my monies were all... Used up. And the center couldn't support you? The center could not support me, okay. so I would put on lay clothes every day okay. and go and work as a bookkeeper in different um, uh, corporations. Okay. And then come back and put my robes back on. Okay. Um, I believe situations are getting better for monastics in general, and uh, I uh, also feel that we're becoming a little more careful about informing those who wish to be ordained what is uh, in store for them and to really look uh, a little more broadly as, as to what their opportunities and uh, placement could be as a monastic. Um, I think we have to be cognizant that some t uh, of really, really checking our motivation for becoming monastics because sometimes we just want to be taken care of and um, monasteries tend to be very busy places and requiring a lot of cooperation among the, the residents. Yeah. So um, I believe the selection process and the weeding out process is becoming clearer and uh, much better for everyone concerned. In the East... Uh, and I haven't been back to Dharamsala in a while, except for South India, but in northern, northern India, I believe um, the Western monastics are much more organized now, mm. and there are plans to build a Western monastery uh, uh, which, would, which would house both um, female and male monastics. Wonderful. And um, the Dalai Lama is endorsing this and really um, guiding it a lot. He himself has so many disciples around yeah. the world now, yeah. and I'm so heartened by his um, taking a very hands-on interest in uh, guiding the Western 
monastery in in India. Mm. So, what were some of your duties? Now you worked during the week, and I imagine you were at the center during the weekend, wearing your robes. Did you have a Sunday service? Did people come to meditate in the evenings? Mm-hmm. Did were you able to lead that, or were you teaching uh, some of the lay people about Buddhism mm-hmm. at the center when you came back from India? Yes, when I came back, I didn't teach initially, but but slowly it started okay. um, occurring. Um, teaching on occasional Sundays. Uh, I started a little uh, children's class, uh, working in meditation with children. Started a bookstore. Um, in in West L.A. we had an apartment building, so I was also managing the apartment building and uh, really taking on too many things. I think there is a percentage of monastics who tend to... Um, take on too many things. Do you find them burning out? I think there is that potential in in different ways. And then having to step back and reassess. Um, And yeah, we all have our own particular learning styles or tendencies of doing things. So um, I was one of those who was really taking on too much. Um, And what did you decide to give up to? When, you, when that came to you and you said, I'm just doing too much and I can't do any of it. Uh, well, one, one way I would handle it w- uh-huh. would be to take occasional forays back to my nunnery. And was that like study. a retreat for you? It, was, it was really like a time of deepening my practice. Okay. I would get up very, very early in the nunnery, like at 3 or 3.30, and... Um, it was such a pristine, quiet time mm. without the din of the community being so busy. Yeah. So I, I treasured those early morning hours and would do some practice and meditation. And, um, and then I would walk down the hill to the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. I started attending the classes there again and uh, studying five days a week at, at this library and uh, participating with the nuns quite a bit too this time these other times so just being with the nuns and having the opportunity to um, study practice I would also teach English to the nuns and were you speaking Tibetan at this point yes I I, um, okay. I my Tibetan really increased one uh, just as yeah. a little sidebar one yeah. of the ways it increased was while I was in California here I um, took on a project of going on a monastic tour and uh, being the coordinator for a tour and we went to 11 countries over 13 months and um, um, it was like a a goodwill tour on one hand, but also to help raise funds to build a new um, temple for the monastery in South India. And we were accomplished all of those things. It was great. And so um, my Tibetan language picked up very well during that and also living with the nuns in, in India. So, okay. Yeah. So um, now you've in at the La Cienega Center, and then you moved from there to this center in Long Beach. Was that the next move? Um, you sold that with and a couple this? transitions. A couple transitions. Because okay. what happened in West LA were the 
the l a riots oh yeah after the rodney king incident was that ninety four my i can't remember the exact date i can't do that was one and the other thing was the earthquake that really rattled santa monica and west l a and our building slipped off its foundation while we were in it it was very frightening so those two events precipitated a need to move another event where i was alone in the whole building was a a foiled drug bust outside our window and i i heard gunshots and watched two boys die outside my window so i i really agreed with everyone that it was time to move to a better place so but the transition didn't go as quick easily as from here to one spot to another because we had to determine how to dissolve that building and where were we going to move so we lived in a trailer for a little while in a canyon in malibu thanks to a friend and then we moved we rented an apartment for a short while and geshe-la taught all over LA because we had no regular teaching place and people would open up their their martial arts centers for us both in pacific palisades and in atwater village and and people's homes we would teach in different people's homes until we finally got this place in 1997 okay this is a wonderful place yes yes then you moved in here and then you decided i don't know if you decided but somebody decided it was time for you to have your own place or become a teacher in your own right and and there was a group in colorado springs colorado yes that said please send her up here we want her as our teacher right they were asking for a resident teacher and i chose to take on the post okay and that was in ninety eight i believe yes prior to that i'd been hopping around a little bit one of my mentors is venerable tipton children oh yes who was who was really encouraging me to teach and so i was spending a lot of time with her in group retreats or at her center in seattle and so i also started teaching in seattle and in fairbanks alaska and in colorado but when the colorado group said they wanted a resident teacher to come and stay there i i decided to move and in moving you also decided to go back to boulder i guess and get your master's degree in buddhist studies well i was there in in colorado springs and i would occasionally drive up to boulder which was a hundred miles north of us okay and uh... and there heard about the monastic uh... scholarship so i decided to apply and see and i was accepted and and then needed uh, a little vehicle, the same one I'm driving now, All right. which now has 210,000 miles wow. on it. <laughs> wow. But I had to commute to Boulder generally twice a week, 
um, a 200-mile round trip, mm. um, which was very challenging in the spring snows, particularly. I bet. Going over mountain passes. And while you're there, you, you, you have your sangha, you have your teachings going on, you're also uh, getting your master's in Buddhist studies, and then were you contacted by the Air Force Academy? Yes. Or did you contact them? They found me. They found you, and they yes. said, we'd like you to be an Air Force Buddhist chaplain? Uh, yes. Okay. But I have to go through a lot of clearances. You yes, know, I the bet. Military. Background checks and Background things? Background checks and security clearances. And um, but I actually started there before I went to Boulder. Okay. Um, there was a a young cadet, uh, one cadet, mm-hmm. who uh, was very instrumental in starting the Buddhist group there, and I worked with him for four years wow. at the Air Force Academy, um, and uh, the the Buddhist group continues today. I was there for five years. Um, and um, now Sarah Bender has continued the group in the Zen tradition. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I really, really enjoyed being with the cadets. Um, if you have been to the U.S. Air Force Academy, it is up in the up against the mountains, uh, the Rocky Mountains, close to Pikes Peak, mm-hmm. and uh, it's about seven or ten miles from the gate to the chapel. Wow. So they are somewhat cloistered away, and I, I um, jokingly uh, do the analogy that the, the cadets and my life are very similar in the fact that um, they wear a uniform like I do. We have uh, similar hairdos, and we have a code of ethics. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And uh, so I, I really enjoyed working with them because they're, they're somewhat isolated there sure, um, sure. and um, work very hard. How did, you, how did you work with the first precept? Because as a Buddhist, the first precept we take is not to kill. Yes. And these men and women are being trained to uh, be warriors yeah. in the same way the, the historical Buddha came from the warrior caste. And uh, uh, so was there tension when it came to the fact that they might have to kill, whether it be drop bombs or or use a rifle or whatever ways they kill? These cadets, uh, and this was pre-9-11 when I started, so we were looking at a more idealistic uh, philosophy towards their life as a, um, uh, an Air Force pilot or a military person. So this precept of not to kill, they also hold. They, they tell me, and it's come from different cadets over the years, that they are the last persons that want to engage in battle because they know the conditions of what they're getting into. Mm. And that they consider themselves peacekeepers. Now, you can take it any way you want from that. And so I would often uh, discuss this area of um, birth, sickness, aging, and death, the condition of our human existence, and looking at that more than uh, not to kill. 
know, okay. um, really um, having them try to look at what happens to this life uh, as a human being, regardless mm -hmm. of if you're in a uniform or not. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> then 9-11 hit. <laughs> and everything changed. Everything changed. Yeah. And it became extremely difficult to go through the security to get into the academy because they would check our cars, our engines, our trunks, put mirrors under our, our cars to see how they were. And so the clearance to get into the academy was um, much more tedious and yeah. uh, hard. <clears throat> but from what I understand, there really has been only a minimal drop-off of young men and women applying to the school. I think that there's a, a there's still a huge number of um, young Americans and their parents probably who um, uh, esteem the education that one can get at the academy. Yeah. And uh, there's also a, a, a very strong um, it's it's a difficult school to get into. Not only do you have to excel academically but also you need to be strong physically and be um, have some affinity to the military life. So it, it really calls upon a certain kind of person mm -hmm. to even consider going there. However, for the cadets, the real uh, dividing line comes at the end of their sophomore year when they can bow out and, and have no, um, uh, what do you say, they're not obligated to fulfill any military service. Okay. But once they start on their junior year, then that's where they begin. Um, they have to re repay okay. the U.S. government. So that's, I'm sure that's a big deciding point for them. Um, going back to this not to kill part or even coming to my Buddhist group. Yeah. It is um, really for the different thinker at the academy. Okay. There's, a, there, I believe, you know, there's a, such a sense of conformity mm. in the way of how they're trained. Yeah. That those who come to the Buddhist group are very much different thinkers who are exploring their life and their experience in the academy in a different way. Mm -hmm. So um, I, uh, I often found the way they thought very inspiring mm. and was encouraged to be there. I was totally willing and enjoyed being with them. Wonderful. Yeah. And uh, once a year we would go, um, th they called us the Low Numbers Faiths groups. Okay. Which were the Jewish, Orthodox, Christian, and Buddhist groups. And we would do a retreat together. Because the Christian and Catholic groups were very large. Um, so the low numbers faiths groups <laughs> would have our own retreat time. And it was much more interfaith. We would discuss and have things, uh, uh, planned events together. Uh -huh. We would go and visit each other's temples at different places in, um, in Denver. Uh, and uh, recently, um, the people that I work with arranged an amazing meeting 
for those cadets who are interested to have a private meeting at the residence of Ken Wilbur. Wow. And so they had a day. One with of my Ken. favorite guys. Yes, and they had a day with Ken Wilbur, and they're planning another one. And um, Ken Wilbur talked about the, the the nature of the human consciousness and the mm -hmm. need for a military. Uh, so he spoke in a way that really um, uh, encouraged the cadets and you know their lifestyle and their work. I wasn't there at that one, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, and and even King Ashoka. The famous Buddhist king yes. didn't disband his military because he realized uh, having a military uh, was a way of protecting the citizens. Yes. Yeah. So it's not like I suppose we can get rid of them. No. Because the world would turn into chaos. That's right. So it's interesting that uh, we have to come to a place of peace with that. Yes. If we want to keep our mental health, our mental health. Right. Yeah. So, how long were you in Colorado Springs? I was in Colorado Springs for seven years. Seven years. Mm -hmm. And then you decided to come back to Los Angeles? I uh, finished my degree at Naropa okay. University and uh, decided, um, uh, partly because of the, the economics of the group, there's a wonderful group of students uh -huh. always trying to sustain me in Colorado Springs, but it was quite challenging, and so I decided that perhaps it was a, t uh, a cooling out period, and it would be good to take a break after being there for seven years, yeah. as I had gone there on a one-year trial. Wow. Wow. So I um, decided to do a three-month uh, solitary retreat. Okay. And, um, and just before I entered retreat, we got word that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama accepted our our request to um, host uh, his teachings here in Los Angeles again. So mm. this was just last, last March, was it? And so um, um, I I took on the coordinatorship of, wow. of this visit and so moved back to L.A. after my retreat. Wow. Yeah. When is the Dalai Lama scheduled to come to Los Angeles? Do you remember? Yes, he'll okay. be here September teaching September 12th, 13th, and 14th okay. this fall, 2006. And will is there going to be a website if people who are listening to this podcast are interested? Can they yes. contact you or your organization through the internet and say, "I'd like some tickets." Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the website is www.tdling.com. Okay. For tutendargeling.com. Okay. tdling.com. And there, when you enter the site, you can see the area for the Dalai Lama's visit. And all the details will be there. We have a contact form. You can um, put in uh, any of your questions. We also have a voicemail phone number you can you can call in, and uh, someone will reply to you. We'll also be selling tickets um, at, through Ticketmaster. Okay, and and you do you have the uh, uh, where the talks will take place? Yes. And will one be in Pasadena? Yes, uh, okay. three days of teachings will be at the Pasadena Civic Center okay. on Green Street, and uh, half of Wednesday, 
uh, the Dalai Lama will be giving a public talk at the Gibson Amphitheater in Universal City. It used to be called the Universal Amphitheater. Oh, yes. But yeah. it's now called the Gibson Amphitheater. Okay. After the guitars. Oh, Gibson guitars. That's right. Oh, they're good guitars. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So the public talk title uh-huh. is going to be Compassion, the Source of Happiness. Ooh, what a good subject. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> now, besides doing that, besides all the work that you're doing, arranging and uh, uh, laying out the Dalai Lama's agenda for when he's here, you're also in Santa Monica at the UCLA Medical Center, and you're taking training as a hospital chaplain. That's right. Yes, and I think that's just so cool. But before I ask you about that, what I'd really like to do is just for you to talk in just a few minutes uh, or less about when you had a medical problem and then you were facing a decision of what you needed to do to get past this medical problem and, and have your life going and... What I'm curious is, is about is how Buddhism helped you deal with your own medical issue. Mm-hmm. That did it give you hope? Did it give you acceptance? Did it give you clarity? Did it give you peace? Or none me, of those things. It gave me a good reality check. Okay. I, when I was diagnosed with cancer. Uh-huh. I thought, why me? (laughs) 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 I've been so good. Exactly. I've been practicing so well. Why me? And so a lot of self-cherishing and um, upset came initially. But the teachings really help when you go back again. You know, first noble truth. Noble truth of Aging, sickness, and death, the inevitable. And this, um, I keep going back to the Four Noble Truths. They are infallible. They help me again and again. And I, you know, we keep going into this, this place of, of um, forgetting. (laughs) Or denial, or whatever we go into. But, uh, the teachings are so um, they just speak about the nature of reality the nature of reality again and again and again it's we who keep trying to infuse you know our own self-interest and self-plan in there but the teachings on karma the teachings on the, the nature of phenomena the nature of our lives, um, just keep bringing me back again and again. And this, you know, our, our life is our teaching, too. Our life is so, um, is, is our teacher. And uh, in this way, I can keep going and then to you know, fast forward into what I'm doing now in hospital chaplaincy. Um, I I find the people in the hospital are my teachers too. Now, those are the patients or These the, are the nurses, the, the doctors, the other chaplains. Uh, the patients, particularly in having to deal with their own sickness, uh. their suffering, 
their surgeries, their whatever is occurring for them. And some people are absolutely inspirational in the way they deal with um, the karmic throw of the nature of their body or the nature of their sickness. And um, and other people are teachers for me in the way of, of saying, boy, I... Um, you, you see their suffering even more when they are caught up in it yeah. with um, the, um, the complaints and the grumbling and the demands that come from a person who is suffering in sickness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and chaplaincy is just a wonderful practice. I... It, from being a teacher for so long, you know, it's it's almost like being in your ivory tower. But okay. when you're actually on the floor working with the patients, um, you have to deal heart to heart. You know, people, uh, perhaps especially in their sickness, can see through inauthenticity yep. right away, and. So you can't be a phony. In you there. can't be a phony, and so you watch your own aversion yeah. or your own heart going out to these people, or your own um, interest. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and uh, it's it's really uh, and and chaplaincy in California is is great for someone who is wanting to learn more about interfaith. Mm-hmm. Traditions. What are some of the challenges? Because I, I was, you were kind enough, or the uh, coordinator was kind enough to invite me over to speak to your group, and it was a lot of fun for me. Uh, but you do have a, a diverse chaplains group there. Yes. And um, how how does everybody get along? Do they all sort of come to a place of acceptance with the diversity of religious views, or are, is there some tension sometimes, or misunderstanding sometimes? The particular group as it stands now is uh-huh. very harmonious. Okay. We're getting along wonderfully. Great. Um, a couple people had dropped out, and I believe they had um, a conflict in interests huh. and so moved on. Yeah. But um, I can see even on the floor when I'm working with the patients that... Um, there, there's an openness and an interest. Some people really want to go straight to the heart of their spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a Buddhist nun who grew up in Hawaii in such a diverse um, community, too, uh, I have never said the Lord's Prayer so many times that <laughs> <laughs> I have in these last few months in chaplaincy. And, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm appreciating um, saying it and and having the opportunity to say it with some people who who pray with so much heart. Yeah. And I'm learning Jewish prayers and other healing prayers and um, working. Uh, I find the the Buddhist prayers of loving kindness, the metta mm-hmm. practice, uh-huh. loving kindness meditation being wonderfully helpful for people in in um, the hospitals because they 
oftentimes people are, are lying down in bed with their pain and sickness, but they're so in their heads and they're thinking about their work to do or their families or what they couldn't do because of this accident and they're, they're so out of body and, and full of tension in their shoulders and in their minds that the metta meditation particularly is very helpful to just bring them back to, or to even have them rest on the breath so that they become uh, embodied again, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak, and also that they come back to, to the sort of present moment, present experience, moment huh? experience, exactly, yeah, yeah. so that they can enjoy uh, um, connecting themselves, you know, for a moment. Yeah. And uh, some of the discussions are, are really um, inspiring for me. Too. Wonderful. Yeah. One last question, and the question is, what do you see as some of the challenges for monastics who are growing older? Uh, you and I, each year, seem to get one year older, and uh, whether we want to or not. And, and we were talking uh, uh, yesterday or the day before about the challenges of getting even health insurance sometimes. It's not yes. available to us. Right. Um, are we going to have uh, um, Social Security? Are we going to be able to go to uh, a rest home, or will there be a temple or a center available to us? So as as a Western monastic, and you've been ordained for how many years now? Almost 21. 21 years. Congratulations. That's Thank wonderful. <laughs> what do you see as some of the challenges for, for both of us as we go into our twilight years? Yes. I think if we're really sincerely practicing and um, perhaps the teachers have a different mm, category somewhat but there tends to be a group of people who esteem the Sangha and help so even though um, we may have a very um, minimal minimal um, stipend Um, I always seem to make it because um, people are very kind and helpful. But um, but I am concerned about something like health insurance, which I've been denied uh, as an individual. I think as aging monastics, um, uh, unless we are involved in some group somewhere, uh, some corporation, maybe in a, a, a larger working facility, um, we have to fend for ourselves, and this is this is um, this is daunting. And already we're challenged as being white crows. <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have a lot to to work with, and I believe you know we're paving the way for the next group of monastics who'll come and. Um, friends have approached me at different times as to how we can work around this and develop group insurance for monastics regardless mm-hmm. what tradition we're in or what <coughs> what center we're associated with um, but it hasn't really gone very far I haven't put too much energy into it I think this is an important one so in, in a way we're sort of pioneers if, if, if we can figure out how to get old and die as a Buddhist monastic in America, the, the, the generations behind us will have that as a template in, in, a, in a real way. Yes. Yeah. 
yeah i think as pioneers we also have to really practice as well as we can with being in the twenty first century being educated in the western school system as well as the buddhist traditions that we need to synthesize what we can and really you know pave our own way besides paving the way for others it is a very exciting time to be a monastic because we're not encrusted by formality and tradition that we do need to keep our eyes open as to working with greater conscientiousness and clarity that we're doing things and not just setting the stage for more rigidity in formal practice not practice in meditation but practice in the way of lifestyle so we're not burdened with the centuries of tradition in America we're so new here and we're still trying to figure it out and as we bring the teachings to others who are interested in English so they don't have to learn Tibetan or they don't have to learn Sanskrit that we can impact them in a very special way in the way each culture has impacted their Buddhists yeah it's true isn't it yeah by making Buddhism theirs right there is a comment you know as being really good practitioners too that I've read in the text somewhere which is so sweet that they say if you're really practicing well and you're in the mountains somewhere meditating that if your practice is sincere the noodles will even roll up to you and that you don't even have to go down for your food I like that that's good and I think it's true as a beautiful symbol of sincere practice and I really mean this for people regardless if they're monastics or not wonderful could you share with us one more time the name of the center where you live in Long Beach and also the website so they could if they're interested in finding out more about you or the center or the Dalai Lama and his tour they could come to www.tdling.com and just enter the site and there will be other links to the Dalai Lama's visit this coming September 12, 13, 14, 2006 in Los Angeles and there's also a voicemail too so that voicemail number is 213-987-2927 that's a wonderful well thank you so much for letting me sit down with you and ask you questions it's always a pleasure and it was a lot of fun and I guess that's it 
So thank you. Okay, thank you too. Well, that's it. That was my interview with Venerable Tenzin Kacho in Long Beach, California on April 1st, 2006. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like more information on me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. And please feel free to email me. I've received emails now from all over the world um, commenting on my podcasts. If you have a comment or a suggestion, please drop me an email and let me know. Kusala at urbandharma.org. And speaking of urbandharma.org, that's my Buddhist website, over 1,500 pages of Buddhist information. If you haven't been there yet, please drop by. I think you'll find it useful. So until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.